Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books and World Affairs podcast. My name is Jeffrey Gordon, and today I'm talking to Zach Sell about his new book, Trouble of the World, Slavery and Empire in the Age of Capital, uh, released in January 2021 from the University of North Carolina Press. The middle decades of the 19th century witnessed the expansion of slavery and white settlement and dispossession of indigenous lands west of the Mississippi River, the abolition of slavery in the British Empire, followed by the importation of indentured laborers from India and China into the West Indies, the consolidation of British rule in India, followed by the so-called Indian Mutiny, and the expansion of settler colonialism in Australia. These processes were all tied together by commerce, empire, and the spread of racial ideologies, yet their histories have largely been written separately until now. Zach Sell's book, Trouble of the World, highlights the connections between the second slavery and the deep south of the United States, efforts to socially engineer monocrop agriculture in India by a British colonial state that paid lip service to laissez-faire and free labor even as it tried to import plantation management techniques from the U.S. South. The book covers the attempt to create plantation-style agriculture in Queensland, Australia, and how this bumped up against the logic of white settler colonialism, and it covers attempts to expand plantation agriculture in Belize in the age of so-called free labor using indentured labor from Asia. This is a story of racial formation on a global scale and of the limits of capital's ability to remake social relations and environments in its own image, despite the capacity for organized brutality that it had at its disposal. This book is particularly important at a time when many American, British, and French commentators have tried to downplay the violence of expansion and colonialism and to portray white supremacy as some sort of American peculiarity and relic of the past. Zach is currently visiting assistant professor of history at Drexel University and was previously Ruth J. Simmons postdoctoral fellow and visiting assistant professor of slavery and justice at Brown University's Center for the Study of Slavery and Justice. Zach, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeff. It's it's great to be here. Um, so, Zach, how did you become interested in writing about slavery, empire, and capital in the 19th century? Thanks. That's a, a really important question. And I just, again, want to say thank you for the opportunity to uh, talk about my book and also acknowledge that we are recording this really a year into when the ramifications of the global pandemic took root in the United States and dramatically disrupted life um, and, and livelihoods, no doubt, as well. And I wanted to sort of acknowledge that at first because of the kind of like massive loss that has happened in the past year, but also and in a much less significant way, uh, but personally meaningful, perhaps, is to acknowledge it because it was exactly in those months that I finished the book and submitted it for publication. So um, Trouble of the World, though, began as a dissertation project at the University of Illinois. I was really motivated by a concern about how to write histories of race, colonialism, and empire that extended beyond uh, 
what, at least within the field of history, were common organizing frames, such as discrete national histories or empires. And it also was concerned with the way in which U.S. slavery structured patterns of relation, especially within capitalism. It drew upon, you know, and draws upon multi-sided archival research uh, and and was really based upon a belief that that research could reveal different aspects in the history of capitalism, slavery, and colonialism, particularly uh, in their interaction. And the book was really motivated also um, by a lot of kind of like field-defining scholarship from what I would describe as race, capitalism, and colonialism studies. Uh, you know, I've, in the 10 years since I began working on, on the project, this field is really dramatically transformed and, you know, drawn a lot from the influences and influences, including from Lisa Lowe, Walter Johnson, Tony Bogues, Chris Manjapra, David Rodiger, Antoinette Burton, um, just to name, name a few people. And I think also, you know, so I've, I finished the book, you know, I finished the project as a dissertation and had the opportunity, as you mentioned, to work on kind of like transforming it at Brown University Center for the Study of Slavery and Justice. And it was really there, I think, that the book took a new form to think a little bit more deeply and conceptually around um, questions of what the kind of like deeper structural and political histories of race and capitalism were in their interaction. And I think there I would just particularly uh, like to, to note the deep influence that Anthony Bogue had on had on my thinking and kind of like the community that he created there. So. Um, that's fantastic, and um, uh, I think that um, books like yours are so important because they try to uh, write histories of of capitalism and race formation outside of and beyond the national frame, and, and highlight connections between dis- distinct regions. Um, uh, you, your book cover goes from the U.S. South to India to Australia to Belize. Um, what are some of the challenges and trade-offs involved in writing a book of such immense geographical scope? And what are some of the sources that you used and archives that you visited? Yeah, so that's a really uh, important question. And I think that, you know, the kind of like question of trade-offs and payoffs, I'd I'd frame in this way. So, um, you know, there's the great scholar of imperialism and colonialism, Catherine Hall, at one point writes that, um, you know, different colonial projects provide access to different meanings of empire, different ways in which to understand the history of empire. And, and, you know, when working on this project, I was really uh, inspired by that observation to try to think of how multi-sided archival research could produce in some ways, or at least engender new questions about how one might understand um, the history of capitalism, not according to, you know, discrete nation states, not according to discrete empires, but through dynamic interaction. And so, you know, in that, I think there's a lot of kind of like interpretive purchase and power, but I also think that there's limitations. And sometimes there's limitations in which a project like this might be kind of like seen and read. And I think that, you know, there's a tendency when one writes a project that's based upon kind of like multi-sided and in a certain sense, global history to uh, conflate that with kind of like a history of the world or something like that, a history of everything that exists. And that's not really, uh, you know, what the ambition of this project is, but rather, uh, you know, it's kind of like ambition, I think, is to try to re- 
kind of like reorganize in some ways the way in which capitalism and empire in the mid-19th century can be understood um, through interactions, particularly between U.S. slavery and the British imperial world and the period between emancipation in the British empire and black emancipation in the United States. And I think by focusing on that period, we can see kind of like the ways in which uh really global formations of capital and empire become increasingly violent in new and and quite unexpected and unanticipated ways. Right. And I think that um, uh, the global history movement, uh, as you said, is not necessarily about a history of everything. It's a history of connection. Uh, and here, Grimandar Bambra's work on on uh, historical sociologies of connection is what I have in mind uh, as a, a direction I would like to see comparative politics go in more and highlighting relations and connections between distinct histories and, and distinct processes and seeing how um, um, the interactions and transactions between dis- discrete projects or discrete locations uh, um, shaped the trajectory of these processes. Uh, I see it as more of a, a complement to local or national histories rather than some kind of uh, uh, substitute for them because it highlights these uh, uh, multi-sided connections. Um, and I, I noticed, uh, um, and I, I uh, didn't necessarily write this down in a question, but I noticed that along these lines of, of focusing on connections, that there's a, a little bit of influence of um, work on anthropologies and geographies of, of logistics. And, and, and here I noticed you cite Deborah Cohen's work on um, uh, uh, the violence of supply chains and, and mm-hmm. Anna Lonehop Singh's book, uh, uh, Friction, uh, an Ethnography of Global Connection. Um, uh, how are you influenced by some of this uh, more contemporary social theorizing about uh, connections and supply chains? Yeah, that's that's a really terrific question. I think that particularly uh, Anna Singh's really wonderful work, whether it be friction or sort of writing about scale, I think really helped me think of how to kind of like re- reorganize my project or think differently about how it was ultimately going to look in its final form. So I think one of the things that Singh says that's so uh, profound and important is that, you know, history cannot be organized or, you know, social processes can't be organized according to sort of precision uh, nested scales and instead global social processes uh, flow across uh, kind of like these scalar um, scalar geographies or modes of looking. And so I think that was, you know, really important to consider. And similarly, writing on logistics, I think, was, you know, um, really influential in trying to think of how uh, capital was organized on a global scale in the mid-19th century. And so those works are, are you know, uh, just some of, of the many that I was, I was influenced by in, in working on the project but of great importance, no doubt. Yeah. Uh, uh, the new work on critical logistical studies has really been super interesting to me just because it, it takes these things that these processes that so many people take for granted, uh, um, in terms of, uh, just having things delivered on time and, and, uh, mm-hmm. uh unpacks the political, uh, uh, conditions of possibility for for logistical processes, and I I think that that influence comes through a little bit in your work, particularly as we'll discuss in your your chapter on on uh, uh, your chapters on colonial India and the efforts by the colonial state to construct new relations between places within the subcontinent uh, by constructing infrastructural projects. Um, I also uh, wanted 
to talk to you about uh, speaking of intellectual influences, the role that um, the black radical tradition played in, in shaping your, your interpretation and, and, and your conceptualization of the project. Um, W.B. Du Bois, C.L.R. James, Walter Rodney, Eric Williams, Sylvia Winter, Cedric Robinson. Uh, they all come up throughout the pages of your uh, of your book. And um, I really see one of the strengths of your project as um, um, kind of challenging this longstanding epistemological segregation and erasure that has marginalized Black, Indigenous, and Southern political and social thought. Um, describe the influence that that these black radical scholars have had on, on your thinking about this project. Yeah. So I think, you know, another really important point and something that um, structures a lot of different aspects of the book is the way in which, especially some of the authors that you noted, and I I guess I would highlight um, first um, W.E.B. Du Bois kind of engaged in, you know, and this is most dramatic in, in his uh, Black Reconstruction, kind of like a radical critique and rethinking of how capitalism could be understood from the perspective of Black emancipation in the United States and through that history also to understand kind of like redefinitions and ultimate betrayals of, of Black freedom and, you know, to, to draw upon, you know, sort of the real global implications of Black emancipation. And so, you know, that work is of great importance. And I think Similarly, and um, just to kind of like continue on that on that point is the way in which subsequent scholars have called for considering how Du Bois's rethinking of categories for understanding capital and capitalist processes might be understood. And so that's something that I really, you know, was deeply influenced by. And similarly, you know, that the questions that emerge from uh you rightfully identify as the black radical tradition, uh, drawing upon Cedric Robinson in, in that framing, um, really demand a radical rethinking of the way in which blackness, anti-blackness, and capitalism interact with one another on on really a global scale. And so those are concerns that, you know, animate the project in, in many different ways um, and, and inspire aspects of the project. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's such a tremendous, tremendous and dynamically um, existing and also contemporary uh, in the present transforming field that that I think um, is just, you know, a fundamental importance. Um, you argue that the period between the abolition of slavery in the British Empire in 1833 and the process of emancipation that began in 1863 in the United States uh, was marked by three interrelated processes that articulated racial formation, colonial occupation, and capitalist development on a global scale. Uh, What were these processes and how did these processes build on or undermine each other? Yeah, so you're exactly um, right that a central ambition of Trouble of the World is to, you know, a return to the period of explosive crisis and upheaval between Black emancipation um, in the British Empire or emancipation across the British Empire and Black emancipation in the United States um, to understand how really U.S. slavery exploded to a kind of like vastness hitherto unseen and was really propelled forward uh, by the outrush of slavery produced commodities to Britain, to continental Europe and beyond. To understand how um, in so many different ways through that Britain also looked towards its empire to see uh, different colonial sites and colonial projects that might meet the kind of or match or surpass the economic dynamism of of U.S. slavery. And so, you know, in that concern, um, I do 
try to identify three interrelated tendencies within capitalism's really production of and operation through racial domination and colonial occupation. And so those first three tendencies, really the first entails projects to perpetuate plantation societies through the elaboration of new forms of coercion and bondage. Uh, The second tendency really involved the pursuit of all white settler societies or white racial ethnostates based upon indigenous dispossession and black removal. Uh, really in projects to make what we're seeing as new white men's countries. And, you know, the third tendency was defined by projects to racially arrange, dispossess, and dominate work through the capitalist marketplace. And, you know, this last tendency operated through the making of a false choice, which I think was drawn so starkly in post-slavery context between the compulsion to work for wages or produce commodities to sell on the marketplace or otherwise sell, uh, suffer from des- destitution. And so it's through those three tendencies, which I see as kind of like unfolding through uh, concretely through interrelated histories ranging from South Asia to Australia to the United States to Belize to Britain. And I try to kind of like understand um understand kind of like the dynamics of capitalism in this era. Yeah. And it, and it was really interesting to me how at times uh, the tension, particularly between um, the project of constructing plantation agriculture uh, uh, on a world scale on the one hand, and on the other hand, trying to create uh, uh, white man's countries and white uh, ethno states uh, uh, came into conflict with each other. And that's something that we're going to talk about more when we talk about your, your, your Queensland chapter. Uh, uh, um, But I think that it's interesting that these processes can not only be um, um, complementary, but can also be self uh, or mutually undermining uh, at Mm -hmm. times. Um, uh, depending on on the political dynamics in the particular location, um, the a trouble a problem that consistently comes up is where are capitalists going to find people to work on their plantations uh, and work hard for low or no wages uh, and and low upkeep? And uh, so many times we're going to see uh, throughout this book. Uh, that they don't really succeed in finding an answer to that question uh, because the plantation system is just uh, uh, a really uh, uh, difficult social system to make work. Um, um, So you begin the book, though, by arguing that we should take seriously W.E.B. Du Bois's insistence that slavery itself was defined by the reduction of Black humanity to the status of real estate. Uh, describe the differences between the Chattel principle, which is usually the way that slavery is analyzed in U.S. history, and the real estate principle. And how does this reframing of slavery as real estate connect to the broader themes of the book? Yeah. So when kind of like thinking about the first part of the book and the way in which I, I guess, wanted to understand the internal dynamics of slavery and represent some of U.S. slavery's really unique violence. I, of course, was looking towards authors like Du Bois and especially Du Bois to consider how he framed, you know, histories of U.S. slavery expansion in the mid-19th century. Um, And one thing that comes out in the kind of like beginning of Black Reconstruction is this quote, which you highlighted, which is that, you know, no matter how degraded the factory hand might be, uh, he, that's Du Bois's language, might, he is not real estate. And so for Du Bois, this kind of like occurs throughout Black Reconstruction in um, different moments. Du Bois emphasizes the real estate character of U.S. slavery. 
And that just really stood out to me um, upon after I kind of recognized it. And I began to think more deeply about what that terminological switch might be and mean and signal, I guess. And, I, you know, I even did um, a little bit of research in the Du Bois uh, papers and to find out that, you know, at one point, um, an editor changed every reference that Du Bois made to real estate um, to chattel, as, as you note. And Du Bois writes back and says, you know, this was done in air because real estate is of, of great and fundamental significance in, in my understanding of U.S. slavery. And I think that, you know, it just made me consider that this is, you know, a really dramatic reframing of terms and terminology to understand slavery's particular operation within capitalism, um, which is, you know, a major concern of, of Black Reconstruction, and to redefine kind of the concepts that might be used to understand that. At least that's, you know, that's the area of emphasis that I became increasingly interested in. And I think, you know, drawing upon the implications of Du Bois's argument about real estate uh, forces a reconsideration about both the particularity of U.S. slavery in the mid-19th century and also of its kind of like complex and caustic dynamic with indigenous dispossession and settler colonial expansion in the United States. So, you know, in this era, settler slavery really expands to a, a new scale, um, un, unprecedented in many different ways through kind of U.S. imperial acquisition of territory and through the expansion of slavery simultaneously. And real estate, I think, as connected to land and enslavement and through Du Bois's uh, kind of like concepts, offers at least one way to um, to understand that dynamism. Um, with the with the the real estate uh, uh, thing, I want to see if I'm uh, understanding your point uh, correctly. Um, uh, it, particularly, that quote was so interesting about the difference between the factory hand and the slave, because this is a, a common um, a feature of usually white Marxist writing to compare uh, the white worker in the 19th century to the uh, uh, a slave and calling him a wage slave. And, and an important contribution of the black radical tradition is to say, no, <laughs> this was these were distinct things. Right. Um, but, but with the real estate principle, it's that, um, uh, uh, that made me think of how, um, the lives of, of black people under slavery were capitalized and were used as, um, uh, collateral for, for debt obligations and for raising Mm -hmm. capital, um, and, and in that sense, uh, slaves very much were like the land that they worked in, and in some cases were, uh, attached to that land or, or passed down in the family in the, in the same way that an estate might be. Um, is that really at the, the core of the difference between, uh, real estate and, and, and chattel, uh, slavery? In the legal sense, yes. And I think you, um, have really identified it. I think, though, that one thing that I suspect is the case is that Du Bois's use of, of real estate is really not just defined by the kind of legal categorization, but also about a way to understand better and, I guess, describe um, better the predicament of enslaved people in the mid-19th century United States. And I think that's why, you know, this emphasis here of kind of like no matter how degraded the factory hand might be, the uh, factory hand is not real estate, is really trying to identify more than any kind of like legal definition, uh, some of the unique 
dynamics that define the uh, uh, particular experiences of enslaved people and elsewhere. Um, later in that same quote, Du Bois also makes an interesting and important comparison to Asian indentured labor and in the same way to try to, you know, uh, depict, uh, and, and I think you're right, to write back against uh, white a white Marxist tendency that existed, you know, not just in the present, but or exists not just in the present, but also is very, you know, uh, prominent in, in the 1930s as well to kind of, um, you know, erase differences between, between conditions. Um, your second chapter deals with uh, how free trade between Britain and the United States um uh, influence patterns of indigenous dispossession and slave trading within the U.S. Uh, could you elaborate on that uh, relationship? Um, uh, what were the linkages between um, increasing trade relations between Britain and the U.S., which we can come to regard as sort of inter-imperial relations at this point as the U.S. is beginning to expand its colonization of Western uh, uh, territories? Um, and how did that uh, that transaction between these two uh, uh, imperial entities uh, produce uh, changes within the U.S. itself? Yeah, so you know, a central concern in this chapter is really tracing out how you know this mid nineteenth century is often kind of like characterized as the era of free trade um, and British liberalism uh, and you know British liberal free trade policy. And one thing that you know stood out to me, uh, you know, about this era, and you know others have also have also noted this is that you know. 1846, which is kind of like the height of the passage of trade liberalization policies in the British Empire, you know, the sort of repeal of the Corn Laws, there's also in coordination the passage of a series of tariff reduction policies in the United States, especially around um, cotton tariffs and taxes, essentially. And also, you know, outside of the United States, kind of like a British equalization of sugar duties through the Sugar Duties Act. And here, I think that through all of these tariff reduction policies, you see um, kind of like not free trade policy kind of like um, superseding slavery um, and racial slavery in the mid 19th century, but actually facilitating its expansion and operating in relation. And I mean, that's definitely the case in the United States. And that mutual coordination, I think, is just one element of, uh, you know, the argument of the book, which is to, you know, kind of ask that we think differently about this era, that that scholars of this era think differently about it and think a little bit more about uh, not necessarily Britain and the United States and, uh, you know, kind of like British liberalism or British freedom in opposition to kind of the the global pursuits of U.S. slaveholders, but actually rather um, really kind of like toxically self-sustaining through uh, capitalism particularly. Um, after, uh, you, you start with these chapters on the U S and the relations between the U S and Britain, uh, the second section of the book moves to India and, um, talking about how the British colonial state attempted to induce and then compel Indian smallholders to shift to large scale production of commodities like indigo, rice, and cotton. So as to create an alternative source of supply to the slaveholding U S South, um, 
The shift of indigo production from South Carolina to colonial India seemed to be the harbinger of a broader shift in commodity production from the slaveholding U.S. South to free labor uh, with free and in, in, in quotations, right, mm-hmm. uh, in colonial India. Um, yet attempts to introduce Carolina rice and American cotton varieties to India seemed to founder. Uh, why were efforts to mass-produced rice and cotton in India unsuccessful, whereas indigo uh, was successfully uh, outcompeted there. Um, and I, I want to pay uh, particularly attention to the expectations that of British uh, uh, capitalists that, um, oh, well, free labor will definitely outcompete slavery. What underlied that expectation? Yeah. So, a complicated but really um, important question. So you're right. Uh, the book really does examine how you know a series of, of colonial projects dreamed up often by colonial bureaucrats to introduce slavery-produced commodities across the British Empire, from you know rice, uh, Carolina rice, to U.S. cotton staples. Um, in some instances, indigo uh, really did not match the kind of like uh, you know dreams and expectations of those bureaucrats. Um, or in different ways, actually, abolitionists who often saw colonial agriculture as outstripping U.S. slavery and transforming the world uh, into one based entirely upon free labor. And I think that, you know, the reasons that each of these projects fail or founder um, have have kind of their own histories and, and logics to them. But I think I'd just highlight that, you know, so often the kind of like colonial visions of bureaucrats uh, were also, uh, you know, kind of like extremely harebrained and and in a in a different way uh, abolitionists or for, for abolitionists such visions of freedom through colonial commodity production ran up against really a reality of the resilience of racial slavery as a regime outside of shifts in commodity production um, but even as efforts maybe to introduce Carolina rice into India were disrupted and failed, or efforts to introduce U.S. cotton staples drawing upon U.S. overseers to India failed and foundered. I also think that they created a new way of kind of like British colonial looking towards empire and what empire might operate, uh, what empire might do, what colonies might do for empire. And so in this sense, even kind of the um, really kind of like uh, fastening onto India of a set of ways of obligations to increasingly produce commodities for export in it or export rather for their own um, success, I could say, or in the sense of for imperial projects, because it was about kind of like the subordination of uh, colonies to metropolitan demands. And so I think that even in that way of looking towards the success or failure of these projects, new obligations were really fastened on onto the colonial world. Uh, this just uh, these chapters made me think so much about um, uh, what's going on in, in the global south right now with um, land grabs and attempts to en masse uh, uh, reorganize legal and institutional and social frameworks and, and relations in order to uh, um, uh increase the production of monocrop uh, agricultural commodities uh, in especially in places like uh, sub-Saharan Africa but also in other parts of the global south and and the destabilizing consequences these these projects these speculative projects of trying to 
um, buy up land and redirect its orientation to export export agriculture have had on on um, um, politics and, and economics and societies and in the global south. I think that this is kind of a um, a continuity I see, even though obviously uh, 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 slave slavery has uh, formally been abolished in, in the world economy. Uh, uh, these these um, um, patterns and strategies of, of of imperial and colonial rule, even though they work through different institutional frameworks nowadays, I think that there is there are strong elements of continuity there. Um, yeah, just to just to say one thing uh, briefly on that point is I think it's you know that's the resonance between the mid nineteenth century and the kind of like uh, you know present is not uh, you know just a coincidence or incidental, but it's that this period in the mid nineteenth century is one in which you know a whole series of new forms of domination and coercion, colonial occupation are. Um, really experimented with and refined in ways that, you know, uh, no doubt have, have residents in, into the present. Absolutely. Um, so uh, this, the failure to mass produce cotton in Carolina rice in India has become a flashpoint in the often heated scholarly debate over the history of capitalism and especially the role of slavery in capitalism uh, between economic historians who have economics PhDs and who are grounded in a marginalist, rational actor, market-centered view of the world, uh, on the one hand, and historians of capitalism who have history PhDs and have a broader, more sociological understanding of how the economy works, um, certainly a more Marx-inflected, but also uh, drawing on other kind of broader social theories of the economy. Um, your argument in these chapters, the efforts to import methods of organizing plantation production from the U.S. South, foundered on the shoals of a vastly different social system and the limited ability of white colonial planners in India to coerce Indian peasants to produce these crops, falls squarely in the history of capitalism camp. Uh, in your view, what are some of the weaknesses with the economist's approach, uh, which posits that the failure of American seeds in India's soil and climate conditions explains, uh, and here I'm particularly referring to um, um, Alan Olmsted and, and, and Paul Rhodes, uh, Paul Rhodes's work, and, and they're uh, two of the most uh, vocal critics from the economist camp of, of the history of capitalism research. Um, uh, what do you think are, are some of the shortcomings of, of, of that alternative approach to explaining the failure of mass-produced cotton and rice uh, uh, for export in India? Yeah, so I think that, um, you know, the way that I would look at and frame this question might be just slightly um, different than, right. than the way that, that you did, but I think it's a it's a really important one nonetheless. And I would say that you know, in writing um, the chapter, these three chapters that we're really discussing about different histories of uh, histories through commodities that connected the United States and colonial India in different way, I was really influenced by um, a lot of really tremendous scholarship in agrarian studies on South Asia. And I think that that work um, has been 
you know, overlooked in some of the the scholarship that you just mentioned. And I think that that scholarship really kind of focuses or demands a little bit greater focus on regional particularities, of course, um, but also upon the ways in which smallhold cultivators uh were often able through a variety of means to disrupt the the plans of the colonial state. So it's really, I think that is something that is um, under maybe underemphasized in in that that literature. And I think that at the same time, you know, in the posing of kind of like the the two camps of kind of like the new history of capitalism against kind of the new economic history. I think that that framing really had a little bit more salience. Um, a few years ago than than it does now, and I think now the the ways in which you know approaches to capitalism, colonialism, and empire are unfolding through new historical scholarship. I'm speaking of here, particularly, is is really compelling and and uh, kind of like disrupts that that binary. So I guess maybe it's scholarship that that we could say is in a in a third camp. And here, um, you know, there's so many great works. I'd, I'd just note. Um, two great books by Andrew Liu and, and Aaron Jakes in this in this regard that have been recently published. So, um, but, you know, to go back a little bit to the point about the ways in which uh, smallhold cultivators, for example, often disrupted uh, these projects in, you know, one moment that I think had great resonance with me um, in, in working on the book is this kind of, there's a, in between 1839 and 1849, 10 uh, U.S. plantation overseers are recruited by the uh, by the British colonial state to um, inter- engage in projects to introduce cotton cultivation and Carolina rice cultivation as well. One overseer in particular is in North India um, and is engaged in every effort to kind of like reproduce means of coercion, drawing upon U.S. slavery. And at one moment, um, the overseer is. Uh, you know, in dialogue with a uh, uh, smallhold cultivator who basically says to him, um, you have no power over me. Um, and it's, you know, it's not, uh, it's not your will that will change anything. It's, it's really the will, will of Ram that, that I'll follow essentially, and that will follow. And it's, it's those moments of, of disruption that I think are, are important to also also note to kind of like understand differences between U.S. slavery and uh, colonial agrarian projects in India, even as they became drawn uh, more tightly together. I mean, when overseers relocate, you know, they uh, one overseer one of the first kind of Hindi terms he learns is Zabardasti, which essentially means violence, force, and oppression, and en route to. Uh, India from Egypt purchases a, a, a whip, in fact, made from hippopotamus hide. And so it, it is, you know, all part of his intention to, as others say, kind of like become, you know, new planting elites in in India, but they're disrupted constantly, and not only by smallhold cultivators, but also by landlords who see these overseers as really, you know, uh, completely uh you know, completely seem to kind of like supersede their own power and are, are challenged in that way. So it's it's from, uh, you know, inability to seize control of cr- colonial agrarian relations, essentially, I, I would say. So. Um, yeah. And, and uh, I think that um, uh, this kind of deeper institutional reality uh, that gets in the way of, of 
transporting methods of production from one context to another um, is something that ironically the new institutional economics is sometimes not very good at picking up on because um, it has a a very thin understanding of the the institutions that um, determine economic decision making and um, um, livelihood strategies that that peasants use. Uh, um, I think that you mentioned this uh, um, agrarian studies scholarship on India. I think that um, in general, uh, certainly social scientists would do well to read more agrarian studies scholarship because it it um, um, portrays agrarian social relations uh, in a much more complex uh, as being a much more complex world than I think a lot of um, the simplified abstract models uh, of social scientists uh, um, pick up on and, and, and understand in, in a lot yeah. of cases. And, and just in, in addition to that, I completely agree. Another just kind of great work to highlight um, that I think even like forces some rethinking of the work of agrarian studies is Niladri Bhattacharya's great um, recently published book, The Great Agrarian Conquest, which I think, you know, offers a way to um, better understand how colonial uh, rule and occupation unfolded through um, agrarian conquest, but in a way that's, you know, uh, uh, quite different from the expansion of, of U.S. settler slavery in the, in the 19th century United States, nonetheless. Mm -hmm. um, so the third section uh, um, is, is still in India, but focused on um, the global connections during the the crises, uh, the interlocking crises of of the eighteen sixties, um, and here uh, we turn to the Lancashire Cotton Famine, as it was called uh, at the time, and is still referred to in a lot of historical scholarship. Uh, and the relation between the cotton famine, the U.S. Civil War, which of course disrupted um, cotton exports from the United States. And the actual famine, famine that occurred in uh, uh, mm -hmm. northwest in the northwest province uh, in India in the 1860s, um, you argue that the the depression in Lancashire's textile industry in the 1860s had more to do with the collapse of textile imports in India than the collapse of uh, cotton imports from the U.S. into. Uh, Lancashire during this period. Uh, why did the fortunes of Lancashire textile producers depend on markets in India? Yeah. So, you know, in this era, it's, you know, sometimes described as the period of when Britain is increasingly becoming the workshop of the world. And what that, you know, what that entails is, of course, the export of goods from British manufacturing to places globally, and particularly um, to sites across the, the British Empire. And in, in, in this instance, particularly to India's northwestern provinces, which is really regarded uh, in this era as probably the most significant outlet for Manchester goods. And so, you know, we have to think uh, geographically about how capitalism is, you know, existing in this era. And so, you know, on the one hand, we have uh, cotton being exported in unprecedented amounts from uh, the United States to metropolitan Britain. That cotton is then transformed into textiles, which are exported globally and again, particularly to India's northwestern provinces. And so, you know, I think a common kind of history of this era suggests that, you know, the Confederate blockade of Southern 
uh, the blockade of southern ports, rather, um, which stops the movement of cotton from the United States to Britain is the cause of crisis in Lancashire's textile industry. But that rendering um, doesn't actually really account in any way at all for the kind of like devastating um, famine that occurs in India's northwestern provinces in 1860, uh, which leads to mass displacement and, and mass death with some estimates up to, you know, perhaps one million people um, dying from the famine. And so that famine itself actually disrupts um, the kind of like consumption of Manchester goods. And, you know, factory owners at the time, you know, in Lancashire, for example, are writing about just how significant this disruption is. And so in the book, I wanted to take, you know, that seriously because A, it's part of historical reality and B, because it, I think, forces a little bit of a a rethinking in the way in which revelations of capitalism are understood uh, in this era and crisis are understood in this era. And that, you know, um, that India and the practices of colonialism in India and markets in India are are dramatically disrupting uh, capitalism as well as is recognized in so much of the kind of like... uh, kind of like primary sources from from there, uh, whether it be from factory owners or heads of the Manchester Chamber of Commerce, or whether it be from um, heads of the Bengal Chamber Chamber of Commerce. So it's it's something that's widely widely documented in, in the era. Um, uh, you write about how um, uh, in representations of the Lancashire cotton famine, even framing it in terms of a famine. Um, um, uh, there was an equivalence created between the cotton famine in the Northwest of England and the actual famine in India and British public opinion. Um, what were the colonial and racial ideologies at work that created this equivalence and how did it influence disaster relief measures and colonial state policies? Yeah. So this is a really important point and a, um, you know, an example of kind of some of the questions that you were raising earlier as well, I think of like, you know, why a focus on the history of the economy is not the same as kind of like a history of the focus, uh, a history of capitalism per se. And I think here, you know, um, the kind of racial and colonial ideologies that brought the Lancashire cotton famine and famine in India's Northwestern provinces together are really important to unpack. So these two uh, famines in British metropolitan and imperial discourse increasingly be, become rendered as a kindred distress. And that's a language that's used at the time. And it's not kindred distress in the sense that uh, to emphasize the way in which um, the economic relations are are manifesting themselves simultaneously within the crisis, but rather to say that the suffering, and again, this is within the kind of like colonial rhetoric of um those devastated by famine in India's northwestern provinces is fundamentally the same as um, as un- mass unemployment in Lancashire's textile industries. And, and through this language um, of kindred distress and comparable suffering, there are actual real uh, material transformations that occur. So uh, a lot of famine relief funds that are um, you know, organized um, in India's northwestern provinces, uh, some of the remaining funds, which are called surplus funds, are sent um, to uh, to Lancashire's um, 
both like kind of to the Manchester Chamber of Commerce and to support relief efforts in Manchester. And so here we have the actual transfer of money uh, from uh, first kind of like collected to support those suffering from famine in Northwest uh, in North India uh, to support uh, unemployed workers in in metropolitan Britain, and I mean those types of equivalents, I think, um, really help us understand the way in which the economy in this era is, you know, hierarchically, racially, and colonially organized. I would say so. Um, when metropolitan Britain came to believe that colonial India did not meet its imperial obligation to surpass U.S. slavery in the production of cotton and other commodities, India's weavers, merchants, and peasants were judged, you write, as failures who required further imperial intervention in the forms of discipline and domination, while the burden of ongoing capitalist crisis was further displaced from Britain and imposed onto the subcontinent. Uh, this belief in India's failure to produce cotton to supply Britain's textile industry pivoted on concerns about the quality of uh, the text of of the supply of cotton that that Indian uh, farmers and merchants merchants were providing uh, uh, for the British. Uh, British textile producers believed that Indian cotton was less pure than their American counterparts. Uh, this concern about quality also enters into economic historians' explanation for the failure of cotton production in India during this period as well. Yet as sociologists like Pierre Bourdieu teach us, classification is not a neutral, objective act. It is informed by prejudice, ideology, internalized beliefs. Um, how are these classifications of cotton quality shaped by concerns about, for example, the honesty of Indian merchants or the work ethic of peasants? Yeah, uh, you know, the questions of quality actually animate a lot of concerns throughout the book, not only in the chapters that you cited here, but also earlier, uh, those on on Indigo and and Carolina Rice as well. And so I just first want to say that in general, um, when first working on the project as a dissertation, I didn't really think that much about those questions. But as I continued to kind of reflect upon uh, material, also think about um, what is going on, the literature, um, it really made me recognize why at least beginning to think more dynamically about the question of quality uh, was necessary. Thinking about kind of like the cultural logic and racial logic of quality within capitalism and in interpretations of commodity and forms of commodity fetishism seemed absolutely essential. And so, you know, that concern actually first became animated in the chapter on Carolina Rice that I worked on. And and at one right. moment, that's why it's called Carolina Rice, because exactly. Rice Carolina was considered of, of premium quality compared to rice from South Asia, among other places, right? Exactly. And and the point there is that, you know, you're right. It, it's not a neutral or objective act, but it's a lot about kind of like uh, you know, associations and cultural logics uh, that are being defined within imperial culture, particularly. So a question that, you know, I, I was concerned with is, um, why was there such a demand for slavery produced commodities? And why was that demand um, so firmly attached within kind of British metropolitan society upon to U.S. slavery? And of course, there are aspects of the realities of production and consumption that are at play. And so in the example of Caroline Rice, you know, the 
uh, reduced shipping distra- uh, distance, the particular process of milling does perhaps lend some some credence to an idea that Carolina rice, when consumed within metropolitan Britain, could be perhaps fresher. But there's no, you know, there's no real basis to um, to to fully understand that. But but that element is there. But at the same time, there's also kind of the fantasies uh, and demands for slavery produce that are that are circulating. I think that's, you know, of extreme importance. And so, you know, to carry that argument on to cotton staples, it is probably even a little bit more the case perhaps than in the example of Carolina rice, that there are certain aspects of the production process and factory production in particular that make U.S. cotton staples more easily easy to work upon um, than uh, those uh, imported from South Asia. But as that reality is sort of interpreted within metropolitan Britain, it's all of the sudden cast as the racial failure of India to meet its colonial obligations. Um, the inability, you know, as you kind of rightly say about uh, the, the dishonest merchant and the kind of lack of work ethic of, of smallhold cultivators or peasants. And those are, you know, colonial tropes that are circulating at ever greater frequency during this era um, and with increasing hostility and also, you know, has to be understood as well in the immediate context of the aftermath of the Indian rebellion um, too. So I think that, you know, it's a period of the reformation of a new and continuously vicious uh, British imperial racism toward India and its inability in the, the rhetoric of colonial officials of India to, to, to meet its colonial obligations. So. Um, I, I, so you write that, uh, the burden of the textile crisis was displaced onto India. And I, 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 this jumped out at me because I, I noticed that you cite, um, David Harvey's work, the limits to capital, uh, and his, his sort of spatial theory of capitalism's crises. And, and I feel like, um, that influence starts to come through in your discussion of, um, the relationship between uh, uh, the Lancashire cotton crisis and the colonial states policies in, in India and the attempts to displace um, the burden burdens of risk involved in speculative ventures onto the subcontinent. So I would like you to, to elaborate a little more on what you mean when you say that um, um, the burden of ongoing capitalist crisis was further displaced from Britain and imposed onto the subcontinent during this period. Yeah, so this is, of course, as you um, rightfully cite, an area, area where, and here I'm thinking particularly of crisis theories, uh, where Marxist scholarship is, you know, really rich and important to engage with. And of course, you know, um, David Harvey's work, which is important in this regard, but also, you know, isn't much, much deeper tradition as well, um, which I, I know you know, um, but including the work of Heinrich Grossman on, on crisis theory that, you know, just thinking in relation to that helped me 
better understand some of the economic dynamics uh, un- unfolding in this era, as well as the actual writing that um, Rosa Luxemburg did on on the formation of crisis in this era. So, so just wanted to first highlight that. But to return to your question of how the burden of the textile crisis was displaced onto India, I think it's first a little bit necessary to understand sometimes how this history is is portrayed, uh, the history of the crisis is portrayed. So there's kind of like sometimes a belief that uh, cotton production was dramatically and fundamentally transformed and expanded in India in this early uh, era. And I think the reality is a little bit more complex. And in fact, um, there's a huge redirection of cotton from places such as, and particularly Western India to metropolitan Britain. And, you know, as that uh, redirected flow of cotton you know, it really has a tremendous impact upon textile workers, weavers in different parts of India, and particularly North India, which is a very uh, same region that's so dramatically impacted by famine. And, you know, there's a lot of observations about just how devastating this is, you know, for North Indian weavers and the economy that circulate amongst reports of of colonial officials in this era. So, you know, it's not a a secret or anything like that. And in fact, in many instances, uh, you know, um, colonial officials trying to make sense of how this crisis is unfolding in different places, such as North India, say that in many ways, it's necessary to think of um, North Indian weavers as, and a direct quote here, fellow laborers along with um, the kind of like unemployed English factory worker, but fellow um, workers who are even more disproportionately impacted because of the way in which cotton is being uh, redirected uh, to metropolitan Britain. And so, you know, I think I mentioned earlier that I thought it was really necessary to see how and, and a little bit better understand how um, the uh, crisis, uh, the origins of the crisis could be traced to, to famine in, in North India in 1860. Um, at the same time, I also wanted to kind of like understand different ways that, um, you know, disruptions in uh, cotton supply as caused by black emancipation in the United States or the U.S. Civil War, I should say, also had an impact not only upon cotton producers, um, uh, I guess, um, uh, uh, smallhold cultivators and peasants in and across India, but also upon weavers, for example, which is a history that I think would, would often uh, really not be analyzed. And there's other reports that sort of note um, that weavers are really taken up into, um, uh, so, you know, kind of like Asian indentured labor schemes in this era because of their displacement from work. So I just think those histories of crisis are also really important to understand uh, when we think about this era really outside of its North Atlantic frame. And as a, as a crisis of capitalism, not simply in a crisis within capitalism and not simply uh, a raw material crisis alone or a cotton crisis alone. Um, so your next chapter moves from India to Australia, and and you're interested in um, other attempts by British imperial officials and, and, and colonial states within the British Empire to um, continue to find other sources of, of cotton and, and to create other um, um, plantations out of um, um, landscapes that uh, are... 
uh, inhabited by or or taken from uh, indigenous peoples. Um, and so you focus in particular in your chapter on Australia on on the state of Queensland, uh, which is in, in northern Australia. Um, uh, and uh, this chapter highlights a contradiction that we touched on a little bit earlier in, in white settler colonial projects, and this is also a contradiction that comes up in debates over the expansion of the United States and which territories to incorporate as states and which territories to either allow to be independent or to incorporate as uh, um, basically colonies, right? Um, on the one hand, the production of commodities for export, especially on plantations, required cheap labor that could be stripped of rights and coerced, which is to say non-white labor. Um, but on the other hand, white settlers did not want the security threats or the competition for land uh, that came with large non-white populations. Uh, how did these tensions shape the politics of colonization and labor in Queensland? Yeah, so I think that, you know, here again, um, this is a, a history where histories of white supremacy and settler colonialism, histories of racism and histories of capitalism essentially exist in, uh, you know, as as they so often do in, in you know, contradiction with in, in, in a series of contradictions and also where different colonial projects as imagined by different, um, you know, kind of like colonial officials have very different um, possible outcomes. And so to, to state how that unfolds in, in uh, the kind of like schemes for the colonization of Queensland that emerged in the 1860s, I think, you know, it's necessary to understand kind of different colonial interests essentially. So, on the one hand, there is a very active uh, Queensland immigration official who's really imagining transforming Queensland into an all-white settler co- colony and settler society. And his vision really depends particularly upon the relocation of unemployed Lancashire workers to Queensland, where they are, you know, in this vision intended to uh, relocate buy cotton text uh buy textiles on the one hand and also produce cotton on the other hand and remain forever so it's a it's a white settler colonial project that sees kind of the crisis as capital in capitalism as a fix for the um kind of like extended and extensive white settler colonization of queensland on the other hand there are a series of planter interests um that essentially say that such schemes are you know um ultimately not going to work. And instead, either Asian indentured labor, uh, particularly perhaps from China or South Pacific Island labor, should be drawn upon. Um, And these schemes are kind of unfolding in relation to one another and widely debated within the kind of settler press of, of the era. And at the same time, in each aspect of that debate, um, they are, you know, settlers and planters are drawing upon different kind of forms of meaning from uh, black from black emancipation on the one hand in the United States and more directly the U.S. Civil War. And so uh, the pro-white settler uh, uh, kind of like colony faction is saying that you know um, making an all-white colony is going to lead to kind of like white white supremacist, all white harmony without kind of any, uh, without, you know, 
Black presence, without um, kind of like Asian presence, and of course, without um, Aboriginal or Indigenous presence. And those projects ultimately are um, challenged not only and ultimately disrupted, not only by uh, planting interests that see, you know, the need for the, you know, kind of like um, most readily available and least expensive labor possible, um, but also uh, by British factory owners themselves who say that, you know, we uh, ought to have um, a right to control or at least limit the movement of laborers. And so these schemes that are, you know, drawing upon funds to relocate the workers that are ultimately reducing the presence of which are reducing the wages in metropolitan Britain should be disallowed. And so, you know, it's much longer and and more elaborate history than than those contours just uh, sketched out. But I think in those contours, we can begin to see once again um, how you know a whole set of contradictions within capitalism, colonialism, and racialization unfold in uh, kind of like concrete historical space. Um, you're. Uh, the next part of the book moves um, back to the Western Hemisphere. And uh, here we start moving into the post-British Emancipation Caribbean. Um, and you talk about how actually in in, in the case of, of Belize uh, that you talk about, um, this is also a period after U.S. emancipation when a number, a large number of, of Southern uh, planter families uh, emigrate from the U.S. South to uh, what was then called British Honduras in order to try to um, uh, increase plantation production um, at the behest of the colonial state there. Um, but once again, they ran into uh, the the similar difficulty of trying to find people to work on the plantations uh, um, who they could control. Um, why did the planters turn to Chinese indentured labor in particular? What other possibilities did they consider? Uh, and why did this ultimately um, uh, fail to solve the plantation labor problem in a sustainable way? Yeah. So this is, you know, Another example of a way in which kind of the unfolding of, you know, uh, slavery and emancipation in the United States intersects with um, projects for British colonial expansion. And as, as you mentioned in this instance in, uh, in British Honduras. And so what happens in the 1860s essentially is that there is a very large, two very large landholding companies that are looking towards different ways to, you know, um, uh, strengthen and revive the economy of um, of British Honduras and also to increase the value of land. And so they are envisioning different forms of labor recruitment schemes, um, even before the outbreak of the American Civil War. And so their eyes first turn toward Asian indentured labor, again, both from India and and China. And then in the midst of of really the unfolding of Black emancipation in the United States, um, and, and slightly before as well, there's a whole series of projects to recruit um, uh, formerly enslaved people from the United States to kind of settle and do the work of plantation labor, essentially. And those schemes are, are actually like go much further than one might expect, reaching up all the way to uh, Abraham Lincoln and also, um, you know, uh, have uh, 
have long legs, we'll say, um, that connect with kind of U.S. colonization projects, but are ultimately disrupted, I would argue, because of the interests of formerly enslaved people themselves to remain in the United States. And so when those projects are disrupted, uh, these same landholding interests um, and British colonial officials then return to both Asian indentured labor uh, and subsequently to um, former U.S. slaveholders to do the work of colonization and plantation management. And so the first um, and really only ship uh, of a, of indentured laborers from China arrives in uh, in British Honduras in 1865 with over 400 um, indentured laborers uh, aboard. And the experience of those laborers is, is brutal in the extreme in the kind of like uh, forms of coercion and violence that unfold um, after just the first year, I, I believe oh, nearly or, or over 100 people die. There's a mass um, absconding from plantations where uh, over 100 more Chinese laborers actually join with, um, in some ways, join with the Santa Cruz Maya um, and the leader of the Santa Cruz Maya in this era, uh, Belsen, uh, when contacted um, by British officials to seek their return, kind of memorably refuses, saying that this is not possible because the Chinese are Indians like himself. And in some ways you see the kind of like re-articulation and redrawing of lines of racial solidarity uh, against empire in this era. But it's um, it's also uh, a project where Belsen has has his own interest in, in labor as, as well. It should probably not be noted or at least would, would seem that way. Um, but then, you know, in part because of this ongoing a conflict and in kind of tandem with there's a belief that U.S. slaveholders are uh, who are you know war hardened after the Civil War who are seeking in some ways refuge are going to provide the perfect new settler class because they will not only be able to manage plantations uh, which has uh, you know constantly been disrupted but also and significantly do work to colonize, to secure the border and to, you know, disrupt uh, the the Maya in kind of ongoing border conflicts. And so here again, I think we have histories of, you know, settler colonization and capitalism unfolding in quite, um, quite dynamic and caustic interrelation. Um. Okay, so I I think that this is um, a good time to uh, wrap up, um, but I do want to ask you before we go, uh, what is your next project? What are you working on now? So I'm, you know, just in the very early stages of working on a new project that um, is, you know, sort of tentatively entitled Speculation Against Insurgency that explores um, early histories of U.S. slave trading um, in the kind of early United States in relation to uh, kind of African diasporic rebellion and uprising, and particularly in the United States to, to understand the long legacies of, of U.S. involvement in the transatlantic slave trade. Well, that sounds fascinating. Uh, thank you so much, Zach, for, for joining me today. This was a terrific book. I highly recommend it. Uh, the book, once again, is The Trouble of the World, Slavery and Empire in the Age of Capital, uh, freshly released uh, from the University of North Carolina Press. Uh, thank you so much, Zach. 
Thanks again. It's it's been terrific.